before we get to baseball, a quick NFL advisory. For over 20 years, DirecTV has been the exclusive home to NFL Sunday Ticket, the only way to get every live game every Sunday. I have good news for NFL fans. DirecTV has expanded the service. If you live in an apartment or are an enrolled college student, now you too can get NFL Sunday Ticket without a satellite. To see if you're eligible, go online to nflsundayticket.tv, stream every NFL Sunday Ticket game this season, and follow your favorite team no matter where you live. Use promo code RINGER at checkout to save 10%. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com. Joined as always by my fellow Ringer writer, Michael Babin. Hey, Michael. Hey, Ben. We have a packed podcast today, which I probably don't need to announce. We always have a packed podcast. Later in this episode, we will be talking to Matthew Kaminsky, who is the Atlanta Braves ballpark organist. This is kind of a recurring career day theme for the podcast. We had a director of player personnel on. We had a bullpen catcher on. I think the natural next step after bullpen catcher is ballpark organist. So we are taking that step later on. But first, we are going to set back baseball research by half an hour or so by talking to two of the brains behind the StatCast system, which, as most of you probably know, is the system that was installed in every Major League ballpark last season. It tracks players, it tracks pitches, it tracks batted balls with a combination of camera and radar. And it's really, if not revolutionizing, certainly refining our understanding of baseball stats. It's already changed broadcasts, it's changed the way teams evaluate players, and to a certain extent, it's changing the way that we evaluate players in public. So, this seems like a good time for a State of the StatCast update. And to get one, we are bringing on Darren Willman, who's the Director of Baseball Research and Development for MLB.com. Hey, Darren. Hey, guys. How's it going? Thanks for having me. And we are also talking to Tom Tango, Major League Baseball Advanced Media's Senior Data Architect for Stats, as well as one of the authors of the book, Playing the Percentages in Baseball. Hello, Tom. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So, Tom, you've been posting a a lot of interesting stuff on your site, tangotiger.com, if anyone is interested in seeing the cutting edge of StatCast play out in public. They can find it in your series called StatCast Lab, and you've been looking at fielding and trying to quantify fielding range based on speed and and looking at where outfielders catch balls and, and what we can tell from that sort of thing. And I've seen you in the comments of that series make various estimates about where we stand in terms of our knowledge of StatCast or our knowledge of baseball that we can gain from StatCast using a nine-inning model. So what is the, the current estimate of where we stand if uh, knowledge of baseball is a, a nine-inning game? Where are we right now? Uh, we're probably in the top of the second, I would say. <laughs> so where were we when you joined MLBAM? Have you, have you advanced? Have you retired any batters? Uh, no, not like that. Uh, we were probably uh, at the top of the first, maybe bottom of the first. Uh, the, the the key components that none of the uh, metrics had up until this point was the starting point of the of the outfielder. Mm-hmm. That's critical to know because we need to know how far he had to go to make a play. And right now, anything that's been done has all been kind of generalized estimates of where he probably was in some random point of, uh, some random at bat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a huge gain just to be able to know where he was because that levels the playing field. We now know uh, where everyone is, so we can now normalize everyone's position. And how big a part of your job is just trying to get to the bottom of the second and the top of the third? You know, I, I guess if you could both explain what makes up your job, how much of it is 
public outreach and coming on people's podcasts and how much of it is cleaning up data behind the scenes or recommending new metrics to track or, you know, can you kind of break down, I guess, Tom, you could go first and, and then Darren explain how you spend your time. Yeah, from my standpoint, the, the whole thing is simply being immersed in the data and then trying to find a way to organize the data. And in the, in the process, when we're trying, when we're doing that, we're also finding uh, some some new things with the data. So it's a constant uh, learning experience. Uh, as you know, as every piece of data comes in, we try to figure out what do we do with it and how do we use it. Darren. Sure. Um, so I'm kind of like a hybrid, <clears throat> I guess you'd say. So um, I'm looking at the data constantly, um, but I'm also developing visuals, um, <clears throat> trying to find ways we can integrate what we are looking at into our products. Um, so MLB.com, Baseball Savants, all the various channels that we have. And then um, a, a lot of looking at the data too as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a hybrid between the two. And then community outreach as well. And also, I'll add to that one, is the, we also collaborate. So, like, the, the really snazzy charts that you see, uh, like the Adam Eaton one, where you see uh, his outs made by hang time and uh, distance covered, mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, Darren and I going back and forth trying to figure out uh, how to best present that. So, it's also a lot of fun that we can actually do some collaboration like that. Right. No, it, that's what's great about the learning experience, too. So, like, Tom has his skill set and I have mine. And we're we're kind of like right in the middle there, so it's like I can use, I can shoot ideas off him, and he'll shoot them back. So it's it's actually a really cool dynamic. It, it seems like Adam Eaton is sort of your Statcast muse, from what I've read of your stuff. He keeps popping up over and over again. What is it about Eaton that makes him kind of the the great test case for these new stats? Uh, he seems to have all the little things that uh, you know the scouts love that regular metrics don't really know about, uh, but that StatCast is able to uncover. Really, StatCast is, is at its heart, is simply a scouting tool. And uh, so he does all the little things. He's he's fast. He He's strong in terms of his throwing arm. He positions himself well. Uh, just every little thing. Uh, he's, he's just a terrific test case. You mentioned the, the charts that you've come up with, and people can see examples of that if they follow you on Twitter or they read your site. Have you found that there are intuitive ways to convey this information? Because just glancing at it, I, you know, it, it takes me a, a few looks to say, okay, this is the x-axis and this is the y-axis and this is what a good fielder will look like. Do you expect that the way that you're presenting the data now will be the way that we present it two years down the road or will it all be boiled down to numbers or, or more intuitive charts and this is just sort of the stop along the way? No, I think the ultimate goal for all this, obviously, is to make it very intuitive. You know, I I always say it's like if, you know, the average person can't read it, it's not serving its purpose well. So, yeah, I think the ultimate goal is to make it so the average fan can look at this and be like, wow, Adam Eaton's a very good outfielder um, based off of this information. Now, like, it's always going to be a work in progress. we got to start somewhere. So the, the visualizations um, that you're talking about, like where it's like a line graph with a scatter chart, it, you know, it's not the best interpretation probably, but that's our first stab at it. And this stuff is always going to be moving and hopefully in the right direction. And, and that's what Twitter's great for is getting feedback from people. Like so when we tweet things out or Tom writes his articles, he has a comment section. 
we get feedback from people. We don't want this to be like just in a vacuum where it's just me and Tom and then, okay, that's it. You know, we want the community to be involved in this stuff. Great. I mean, I know that everybody wants access to the data. It's not our call, but we want the community to be as involved as possible with everything that we're doing. So, I mean, yeah, I think it's as we move along, the, the charts and visualizations should get more intuitive. And yeah, but we will have stats associated with it too. So we could say like, hey, Adam Eaton, he is the best outfielder. This is his number based off the metrics we've come up with. One thing that struck me as a little challenging whenever there's a new number or a new set of numbers is uh, making that number, those numbers sort of intuitive. Like baseball fans sort of know what a 300 batting average means or, or 30 home runs or 40 home runs. And that took decades to, to sort of create that kind of shorthand. And how do you overcome that, that challenge of making these numbers make sense in context and, and sort of giving them that context? Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back, you know, there's going to be a learning curve for everything that we do. I think, especially when it comes to Statcast, because when you bake all these new metrics together and say, Hey, this is the number. But you, you gotta compare it to like war, right? What is war? I mean, no one really even knows what, what, like everything that goes into most of the wars. And so I think there's always going to be a learning curve to that, but like, it's like kind of like a quarterback rating too. Um, that's another one that people just kind of generally accept, but you don't really know what goes into it. I think everything that we do, we're going to document and say, Hey, if you really want to look and figure out, I mean, for the average fan, I mean, they don't really care. They just want to know, hey, is my is the player on my team the best? And if they if we have a number, they'll they'll just run with it. But for the really active like person who wants to know and understand, we'll ha- we'll we're going to be documenting all everything that we do. So it'll it'll be an open door. Yeah, and I'd I'd argue this is actually a different challenge in War QBR, where it's a sort of an opaque mix that just spits out a number. Like if you're talking about you guys are talking about speed and distance and and things that are really easy to understand. But, uh, you know, there's might be a challenge like we know how fast zero is. We know how fast maybe like a world class sprinter is. But, you know, where does that put different players in context along that that line? Like, do you find yourself having to like say this is average or like, you know, give a curve? You know, does that get monotonous for you or, or, you know, how do you sort of make that? How do you create that context? I guess is more what I'm asking. Yeah, this is, Tom could probably speak more to this, but you also got to think there's there's various things that go into say a good outfielder, right? So like Mike Trout, he's not the fastest outfielder, but he runs exceptional routes. Um, there's like Kevin Pillar who runs pretty good routes. He's pretty fast, but he gets an exceptional first step. So baking those all into one metric. Um, how do you weigh which one's more important than the other? And so, I mean, there, there's, it's actually a little bit more complicated. On, when you look at it, it, it's actually a little bit more complicated than is he just the fastest and that's why he gets to the ball quicker, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and I think in some cases the numbers, uh, we're just going to learn learn what the scales are. It's just like a pitcher throws a, a fastball. So when I was a kid, uh, 90 miles an hour was like, that, that's a heater. And then that's started to go up and people simply just adjusted because they've been exposed to fastball speed so much. Now when you hit over 100, it's it's not that remarkable because we're kind of used to it because several pitchers can do it now. So the same thing with, let's say, exit velocity off a bat. Uh, right now we really don't, the fan doesn't really have a, an appreciation as to, uh, you know, what's uh, what's a good exit speed, but 
uh, as the numbers start getting uh, published and as they're exposed more, uh, they're going to get used to it. So some of these things they're going to get used to it. So they're going to get used to 32 feet per second as you know a top speed. That's what Billy Hamilton is, and uh, and then slower runners, let's say, would be at 26 feet per second. They're going to get used to those, but not yet. So we're still in that part of the learning curve. We're like top of the first. This is sort of an abstract question, but in, what's your where where could this end up where where you'd be happy with the progress? Like, you know, what's your goal? At what point do you say, okay, we've got this done and, and move on to the next thing? Yeah, that's the tough part is, you know, we've got so much going on. Uh, you know, I've got like uh, a dozen things on my plate. And at some point, I'm going to have to leave this fielding thing so I can take care of other things. And, you know, then I'll come back to the fielding. So there's, you know, it's always a, a continual work in progress. And especially as the data gets, you know, better and better, uh, we're going to be learning even more and we'll have to start revisiting back again. And to add on to that, I I mean, personally, like, I think there's a lot, a lot of things for broadcast purposes that could be integrated and I, I would be, like, ecstatic to see. So, like, if a ball is hit to, to an outfielder, superimpose his range, his expected range on top of where he's at based off, you know, a certain amount of criteria, first step and all that. So we could probably, you know, right now even take uh, all the outfielders' match range for their balls they've caught and put it on the broadcast, and it would just be like some opaque, opaque, transparent range chart. And so I think there's a lot of cool things that could be integrated into the broadcast that wouldn't really stand out, but you could be like, oh, wow, that that's really cool. Yeah, so I'm wondering whether StatCast has surprised you guys and... To be clear, I don't think it needs to surprise us to be valuable. There's that old Bill James saying about how a stat that's useful probably won't surprise us most of the time. It will confirm what we already think, and just sometimes it will surprise us. But has StatCast overturned your ideas about anything yet, or is it mostly just the benefit is that we can make more accurate estimates and in a shorter time frame, but we're not necessarily reversing what we think about any particular aspect of the game or even any particular player. Okay, so, so like, the thing that always shocks me, is just, it's like, just so much data. So, like, and this is what I say, is all the answers for whatever question you have is really in the data. Like, if you, it's just so much that you, you kind of have to look at it in a perspective of, like, what do I want to, to answer? And sometimes coming up with that question can be a little difficult. But, I mean, all the answers are in the data, so um, it's just a matter of analyzing it and figure out what you, want, what you want the data to answer. Like, one of the questions that I had is when we saw the results from the Home Run Derby from uh, Giancarlo Stanton, uh, his hardest hit balls had a 10-degree launch angle, which is it's line drive, and those also were the, some of his shortest home runs. We also noticed in regular games where... You know, balls hit like 115 to 120 miles an hour. We're not producing home runs. And, you know, the takeaway was that when you hit the ball flush, uh, you're going to get the speed and you're not going to get the loft. So that's why you get so many balls hit that hard that aren't producing home runs. So those are like, and when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. That's why you're, you're trading speed for loft. Uh, so that then starts to open up more questions. So there's always, like Darren is saying, you start with the questions, you look at the data, and 
find answers and then that's going to open up even more questions. When we do get all of this figured out, and by we I mean you, <laughs> how, um, how small a sample will be meaningful in that you've been talking about how you know, if you look at outfielders' plays over the course of a season, many of them don't really tell you that much about the outfielder's talent because either every outfielder would catch that ball, you know, 98% of the time, or no one would. And so there's just this sort of sliver in the middle where maybe you it might be as few as, say, 150 balls in a season or something that actually tell us something about that outfielder's talent. But we can see reaction time, we can see root efficiency, we can see speed, all of those things. So will we get to the point where we could make a accurate fielding assessment based on just, you know, three plays or something like that? Will will that be the case eventually? Uh, I would expect something like a one month worth of plays uh-huh. um, that will be able to make an accurate assessment for a fielder. So what takes other systems, uh, you know, one to three years, Batcast will give it to you in like one month. What'll be interesting too is we'll be like, it could be a player's first game too, but we'll be able to tell if a play is astonishing or not based off just the metrics of that particular play. So the sample size for that doesn't, I think our sample size is large enough right now to say, hey, that is a very, very good play. So we have some metrics in place where what we're calling highlight plays, where we could trigger that off and say, hey, this is probably the best catch we've ever seen based off uh, hang time, the distance he covered, how fast he was running. Yeah, there's that other, I think it's a Bill James idea, the the signature start, wasn't it? Where, uh, you know, if, if a guy comes up and his first start is, say, a 10 strikeout, no walk performance or something like that. And I think you've actually looked into that, Tom, and maybe there isn't all that much to it in a single start. But that idea that, you could do something in a single game or even a single play that really tells you a lot about the player because there are certain things that can't be fluked into. They can't be random. If a pitcher throws 101 miles per hour, he throws 101 miles per hour. And maybe that also applies to running at a certain speed or some other component of fielding. And so you could say with at least some certainty, well, he's fast. We know he's fast. And so that tells us a lot. We can extrapolate from that. Right. A good example would be, let's say you, you hit a 450-foot home run on your first at-bat. So not many people can hit 450-foot home runs. But you also don't know is, does he strike out a lot? So he might simply be a, a career minor leaguer who just has uh, incredible power but has no idea about the strike zone. So a good example for a fielder that I just highlighted yesterday was uh, uh, Robbie Grossman. So he's got really good speed. So you can see in the charts that he makes a, a couple of great plays, but he also has several plays where he just has very, very poor routes and balls that should be caught easily end up falling in for a hit. So that's the kind of thing that you have to be careful about where, yes, you have some signature moments, but then you still need a large enough sample to make sure that he's tested in various situations so that, you know, that you want to know how often he strikes out as well. As someone just, you know, writing privately and, and publishing uh, the work that you can come up with on your own, what have you learned since moving over to, to working for teams and now working for the league? I mean, you're talking about my findings? Yeah. Now that I have more access? Yeah. Well, uh, I think the ones that I've been posting uh, right now regarding the, the range, uh, you know, the positioning of the fielders, uh, I find that very interesting. So now I can tell exactly uh, when you're facing lefties or righties, you know, the shortstop is moved over uh, nine degrees. 
all the infielders basically they shift over around nine degrees and and the outfielders they actually go the other way so they're actually positioned two degrees to the opposite way of what you would normally of what the infielders would do so i want to ask about scouting and the convergence of stats and scouts and i know this is something you've talked about a bit tom and i've written about it too just that these languages are now getting more and more similar and we're essentially looking at scouting information or what used to be solely scouting information and can now be conveyed in statistical form. And that is a good thing, I guess, that we're all looking at the same things and we have different ways of evaluating the same things. But I do wonder whether it does get to a point where it does start to threaten the way that things have always been done. And and that's been a fear going back to the Moneyball days where people worried that scouts were going to get crowded out by stat people and the opposite happened really there are more scouts today than there have ever been but when you're getting to the point now where you could make a pretty reasonable estimate of a player's true talent based on just you know a single observation or a small number of observations that's kind of been the scouts advantage where we've needed a year or two years or three years to have our defensive stats mean something and now we're talking about maybe a single game telling us something the way that it would a scout. And obviously StatCast is not everywhere. It's not in every stadium. It's not in every college park. So there's plenty of room for scouts for many years to come. But it does make me wonder, you know, when this information is refined to the point that we can make these accurate estimates based on very small samples, whether that will eventually take some sort of toll. I think it would go the opposite way. I really think that the uh, the scouts have become will become even more important because we really want to be able to, you know, we can now say this is what we're looking for. We want to distinguish between Robbie Grossman and uh, Jake Marisnik, and why is one a great fielder and, and the other one is not. And so we we can now say, you know, look for these kinds of plays. Uh, tell us what they're doing. And that'll give us a better idea as to exactly how talented they are. So I would, I think that the scouts are are really they provide a lifeblood and just like Statcast and Statcast simply will you know point the direction and uh, I think I think everything's just going to grow from there. And how much time do you guys devote to thinking of new metrics? I know you have meetings at times to talk about offering new stats or parsing the data in different ways to be able to answer questions that can't be answered easily right now. So. Is that more of an off-season project? And if so, is there anything you can tell us that might be a big leap forward next season? I mean, I spend a lot of time trying to think of new metrics. Um, you know, there's always... So we have like a weekly meeting where we talk strictly stat cast and metrics ideas. Um, so anything that we ever try to incorporate, we have basically a metrics engine that takes all the data, all the XYs, Zs of all the players, the ball, and everything. And then that spits out uh, the various metrics that we define. So like, you know, uh, how far away the player was from the ball. So, and, that, and that's a very open forum for all the people that work on StatCast. And so that, you know, a lot of us will be watching a game and say, hey, you know what we need to track? For instance, this is this is a good example. We were watching, a, uh, one of our coworkers was watching a game and he saw a second baseman make a play on a ground ball running towards second base and he had to kind of, you know, make a weird throw from a weird angle. And so he, at the black, uh, the metrics engine meeting said, hey, let's try to figure out a throw angle for infielders so we can define 
what he kind of explained as the Derek Jeter throw, you know, where he used to go in the hole and kind of jump and throw. Right. So that's a good example. A lot of this comes organically th- thinking and watching games. And so uh, it, it's always, you know, we're always thinking about things like that. And just to follow up on that, that is there anything that you feel like that you want to know that you want the system to, to track, but it's just not capable of, of, uh, of giving you the the data that you want right now? Are you waiting for a technological improvement uh, for anything? Um, well, there, there is some things that aren't tracked right now that I think would be like super cool is um, the player to Z position. So like if, if like Mike Trout jumps at the wall and we want to know how high he actually jumped, mm. that um, I don't know if it's not possible, but it's not tracked right now. Mm. I don't think the cameras can um, accurately define where how high he jumped but i think that would be really cool like the uh the jared dyson catch last week or a few weeks ago knowing how far he jumped and how high he jumped would be like i think would be pretty cool and there's darren there's something uh you alluded to earlier that i wanted to circle back to and that's the the uh conflict between wanting to sort of the scientific ideal of of advancing knowledge by publishing all your data and you know letting other people replicate your experiments versus the sort of uh, capitalist incentive that you know major league baseball is is producing this data and they want to you know they they want to maintain uh, some degree of control over it and there's been uh, some talk at least in hockey analytic circles about fear of the league deciding that you know all of this data that we've been using to advance the public knowledge of the sport will become proprietary and you know i don't think i think we're at a point in baseball where i don't know if that's a, a reasonable thing to be afraid of but i guess what is the tension between sort of the the pure advancement of knowledge and you know realizing that this is all sort of, uh, you know, a for-profit entertainment uh, company, and sometimes those values don't align. Yeah, I mean, I know there's tension there. Um, and, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it's not my call to for any of any, this is above my pay grade. But, um, I, I, you know, it is what it is, you know. Like, yeah, I mean, ML, like, BAM's a business, and they, you know, they want to capitalize on what they can. But I can see the baseball community um, wanting access to the data, too. Uh, I see both sides of it. And it's been reported at various sites, most recently, 538, that, you know, there's a, a certain percentage of batted balls that aren't tracked. And, you know, I think I can say without being a big stat cast apologist that that's pretty understandable in the first year or two of this technology that represents a really huge advancement. It's pretty cool that we've gone from 0% of balls tracked like this to probably upwards of 90%. So I do wonder, though, you know, the remaining balls that aren't tracked or or whatever else that isn't tracked, is it primarily a hardware issue? Is there any software component to it? Can it be corrected completely at some point in the near future? And does it affect your analysis at all that uh, there are a certain amount of events that are not in the data set? Uh, well, really, it starts with a system limitation. Uh, you, you're dealing with a radar, so it requires a certain level of uh, depth and breadth to uh, to track the balls. But the good thing is that if it's systematic, then it's a lot easier to identify. So if, let's say, it's having a hard time tracking uh, pop-ups that went up uh, 70 degrees, then we can identify those and then, for the analytics of it, you know, make do with it. So we know that 70-degree pop-ups are going to be almost all out. Uh, so we can, you know, take advantage of that. We know that they're not going to be hit hard. 
you know, they're going to be, let's say, 70 miles an hour or less, so we can make use of that. So as long as we understand the bias, we can account for it. And is it conceivable that at some point it will be perfect or close to perfect or, you know, as close as, well, pitch tracking at least is, is very close to perfect? Could batted ball tracking get there at some point? Really, it's a, a technology issue. The, uh, you know, track men and those guys, they're, they're the ones who I would have to answer to that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, does either of you or both of you have a, a favorite StatCast stat or favorite StatCast player, I guess? Someone who has really leaped up your personal leaderboard because of the data that you've been able to crunch? Got to go with Adam Eaton. He's my man. Yeah. <laughs> same, same here. <laughs> I just hope he hits you know, well enough that uh, he can continue to dazzle us. <laughs> well, what's fascinating about him too, though, is you know Hayward got paid pretty well um, based off his defense alone. I'm going to be interested to see how teams that are very savvy analytically will handle him when he comes up. Mm-hmm. All right. So you should all definitely follow both of these guys on Twitter. Darren is at Darren W. Tom is at Tango Tiger, and you can find his site and his most recent research at TangoTiger.com. Guys, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Thanks for being there. All right, before we talk to Matthew Kaminsky, the Braves ballpark organist, a quick message from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites wants to change that. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. Going to see Jeff Lynn play ELO songs next weekend at Radio City? Because I see only the youngest and hottest and hippest acts. You can come too. I just looked up all three dates on SeatGeek. There are tickets available right now. For all you know, you could be sitting right next to me, reveling in those sounds of the 70s. With SeatGeek, you'll never need to waste time checking prices on other ticket sites. Everything about SeatGeek is designed to make life easier for sports and music fans. With SeatGeek, you'll never need to waste time checking prices on other ticket sites. SeatGeek does that for you by pulling all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you save time and never miss a deal. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. This is like StatCast for concerts. Best of all, Ringer MLB Show listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, and then enter the promo code RINGERMLB. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. All right, the rebuilding Atlanta Braves have won only a third of their home games this season, but our next guest is doing his best to improve the spectator experience at Turner Field. His name is Matthew Kaminsky, and among his many other occupations, he's been the Braves organist since 2009. Matthew, hello. Yeah, thanks for having me on your show. Happy to. So my understanding of the origin story is that the Braves had a longtime live organist And in 2005 or so, there was a new screen installed at Turner Field, and some things had to go to make room. And one of those things was the organist and and the organ, I suppose. And so for a few years there, there was canned music in the stadium, and it just didn't have the same excitement, didn't have the same feel. So they decided to bring back the live music, and you were the one who supplied it. So how did you become the, the pick for Braves Organist? Well, actually, I think the um, the prior uh, organist um, had retired because she had kids. Uh-huh. So I don't know if necessarily it was the big screen. Maybe, perhaps it was a combination of both. Yeah. But um, 
for about four or five years, they didn't have an organist. And um, they put the sound guy um, in charge of hiring a new organist. Um, and it turned out that I was teaching a friend of the sound guy's organ lessons. So that friend asked me if I was interested. And, you know, he called up, uh, he called up his friend and got pretty much got me an interview within within that organ lesson. And I got an interview with the Braves about a week later. So something that was not on my radar at all just kind of fell in my lap, which is uh-huh. a pretty cool thing. And what's the interview process like for ballpark organist? Is there a, <laughs> kind of a trial by fire? <laughs> How does well, it, uh, it... <laughs> he kind of wanted to know if, if I knew the game a little bit. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, with, with certain situations, you want to play certain songs. So um, I kind of had to know a little bit about baseball, at least. Um, and then uh, I, I actually made myself or recorded a kind of a sample CD of myself playing what I thought were baseball songs. And you know, he listened to that um, during the interview. And, you know, things uh, things went pretty well. I'm imagining like a, a lightning round style quiz where they say, okay, base is loaded, go. And then you play the, the camel <laughs> recharge or something, or there's a, all right, pitching change, go. And it wasn't quite as intense as that, it sounds like. Not, not quite. I think, um, I think he wanted to, uh, you know, kind of, ease me in slowly. <laughs> so, um, you know, it wasn't as intense and, um, I'm actually, I've never gotten quite a straight answer, but I'm not even too sure if they, um, even interviewed anyone else. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if I was the only one that they found and, <laughs> you know, for, for all I know, um, they were just banking on me to be it. So what, you know, they brought you in for this, this interview and everybody sort of has, different or has like a set of sound cues that you expect to hear during a baseball game. But like, what do you view your, your role as? Are you, you know, a, a cheerleader, a, a narrator, or like the, the Greek chorus? Like, you know, what do you set out to do uh, throughout the course of the game? Well, um, during that interview, um, the, the director of game entertainment told me that he wanted me to be interactive with the, uh, the opposing team's players. So um, I kind of am um, going into Going into that first season, um, I kind of had an idea of what he wanted, but um, you know, um, had to kind of put it into action. So, yes, I'm I, I am a cheerleader, um, but one of the main things that um, you know that the Braves wanted me to do is kind of create a game within a game. So, uh, so since then, I've been kind of known as the organist that makes fun of the other team, <laughs> which is a uh, you know, I guess it is cheerleading in some way, but uh, I think it's more about making the fan experience um, greater than what it is already um, at the at the games. And yeah, you know, this is how uh, I came to came to have heard of you was you've got a, a pretty uh, strong Twitter presence, and you you know announce what what songs you're going to play for which opposing players. I know I was at a. a a game of Turner Field against the Nationals where you played uh, Obla Di Obla Da for Ian Desmond because Desmond has a bearer in the marketplace. So it's mm-hmm. like a lot of them are a lot of the, the song choices are, are sort of stretched puns. I'm, what I'm curious about is what's the farthest you've ever stretched for <laughs> for a joke? Yeah, that, that'd be pretty hard to think offhand. But I think sometimes the puns that I like the most are not necessarily the ones that I guess are the most well-known songs. So actually, 
you bring you bring up um, Desmond. Um, I also played uh, what's the song called Take Five, which is a pretty well known uh, jazz song um, recorded by Dave Brubeck. But not not a lot of people might know that Paul Desmond actually wrote the song. And Paul Desmond yeah. was the saxophone player in that. <laughs> yeah, so and he's the saxophone player in the band. So um, whenever I play that, I get a whole bunch of question marks and. And to me, those are kind of more fun because um, I really kind of uh, get to gauge who's really listening out there. Yeah. Can you tell from your perch up there whether the joke is landing or do you really have no idea other than people adding you on Twitter? Really? Yeah. Twitter's kind of, I wouldn't say the only way, but Twitter's the best way of really gauging. However, I, I realize that on Twitter, um, it might be limited to a certain age group. For example, you're not going to get grandparents on twitter you know uh requesting a song so sometimes i hear about um for example if you know and when i played um take five actually i might hear about it sometime down the road where someone will tell me oh my uh my mom was at the game and she really liked when you played take five so even though twitter you know twitter is the most direct way to gauge what i'm playing if what i'm playing is right sometimes i realize that it's it's not it's not a gauge for all the fans. So th this is going to be a much more pretentious sounding question than it actually is. But you know, can you take us through your creative process? You know, how do you uh, go about matching a song with a player? You know, where do you if you have to learn a song, where do you go to to learn the song? Like, how does all that come together? Sure, um, I get to the ballpark about um, I think three hours before the game, and then um, usually it. It's the first game um, of the series where I really have to do most of my work because then the same players are pretty much coming up um, for the whole series. So the first game of a series, I'll I'll sit down three hours before the game and I'll and I'll look through the um, the lineup um, if it's posted. Sometimes they don't post the lineup until maybe I don't know two hours before the game, but uh, usually they'll have it posted and then um, I kind of go through. Um, each player, and if I have played a song for them before, then it's easier, um, especially for the for the teams that we we see um, in our division. You know, th there's certain players where I've been playing the same songs for the last six or seven years. Do you have a, a spreadsheet or something, master song selection? Oh no, in your head? No, it's, it's it's in my head. I usually I usually could remember what I played for a certain player. Mm -hmm. So so I start putting down on uh, Twitter what I think would be the best um, song um, per player. And usually, right after I post that, I'll get, you know, five or six tweets back think, saying that, you know, you should play this song or you should play this song. So I guess that first hour um, that I'm at the ballpark, I'm, I'm kind of going through the lineup and I'm also getting suggestions. And then I kind of have to figure out which ones would work the best. Sometimes on the organ, you know, if... If I try a rap song with spoken word, it, it doesn't quite it doesn't quite come out as recognizable. Mm -hmm. So I have to choose songs that um, you know people will get right away. So sometimes you know nursery rhymes or children's songs work the best because everyone gets it right away. Um, so so after I choose um, the songs either from Twitter fans or or songs that I've chosen, then um, I usually sit for a good. Um, I don't know, a good 40 minutes maybe, um, and try to work out the songs on the organ. And um, I have my uh, 
my iPad right on top of the organ and I'll, I'll search for the songs on YouTube. That's usually the best way. Um, cause sometimes on YouTube, they'll actually have someone playing the song or they might have, um, like a tutorial on mm-hmm. how to play the song. Um, so it would be for my purpose, it would take a lot longer if I had to find sheet music for everything. So it's a lot better if I just look for the song on YouTube and then try to learn about 30 seconds of it because that's all, all I pretty much get for a walk up. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty good at playing by ear. So, you know, per song, maybe it takes me a good uh, two or three minutes to, to learn about 30 seconds of a song. So, but that first, that first day of a, a series uh, is usually the most to work because um, I have to learn about 12 of those little you know, snippets of songs. So, you know, you're still a, a teacher, a, um, a professional musician, recording artist. How much of the of the Braves job has taken over? Like, you know, this is obviously this is what probably what most people know you for. But, you know, what is mm-hmm. that? How has that affected your career in other ways? Well, it definitely. Yeah, it definitely helps my exposure. You know, it's I think it's about a third of my career. So. The third is about baseball games because I also do uh, college baseball as well. Um, I'll play for the UGA Bulldogs as well as um, Auburn and Georgia Tech. Um, so I, I, I usually play about 100 games a year. And then another third of what I do is other gigs. So I, um, and I perform in a salsa band. Um, I also play in uh, my own jazz band and and different things throughout the year. For example, in October, I played a polka band <laughs> on the accordion. So, so that's about another third of what I do. And then, um, as you mentioned before, the other third would be teaching. And actually, um, I still teach during the baseball season. So sometimes my days are incredibly long during the baseball season because um, I'll, I'll sometimes teach from 10 to 4 and then head on over to the ballpark and then play till you know, the ball or the game will end at about 1030 or so. So it's a, you know, 12 or 13 hour day for me. So I think I've done a pretty good job of balancing, I guess, all three aspects of my life. Um, But yeah, you're right. The, um, you know, being the Braves organist definitely has helped my other, I guess, aspects of my career. So, you know, I get more, I got a lot of students because I am the Braves organist or I'll get, I'll get gigs or I'll get, um, interviews like yourself because i am the braves organist so i think it it, it all helps in the long run and you don't feel as if your lifelong training and master's degree and expertise is going to waste when you're playing shaving a haircut in the josh team no you know what i you know i think it's uh really i find value in all music so um to me you know playing you know, playing something like the chicken dance is just as um, enjoyable as playing, you know, a Chopin prelude or as playing, you know, fly me to the moon. So, yeah, even though I do, you know, I do consider myself a jazz musician. I really enjoy playing all sorts of music. But yeah, you know, um, playing um, as many baseball games as I have, uh, I guess certain songs do get a little bit uh, tiresome. (laughs) (laughs) Did you? It's the it's the Braves, so obviously the crowds aren't as big as as they might be other places. But you know, a stadium half full of, of uh, baseball fans has to be the biggest crowd you've ever played in front of. Did you get nervous when you first took over the job? Yeah, you know, it took me. Um, I don't know. It took me about 
a good two or three months to really become comfortable. Since the Braves didn't have an organist for those uh, five or six years, there were I think there were new employees in there, and, and they didn't know how to work with an organist as well. Um, so it really took us a good two or three months to figure out when you know when they wanted me to play and you know when I could play on my own rather than always waiting for their instruction when to play. During the game, I'm I'm on a headset with a director as well as, uh, or actually we call him a producer, as well as an audio engineer. And there are times during the game where I can't play because there are other sounds being played. So I have to wait for a cue from either one of them. But then there are certain times in a game, like the walk-up situations, where I know that it's me that mm-hmm. that's going to be playing. So logistics like that, like knowing when to play and also knowing when to stop and, and also taking directions while I'm playing. So sometimes I'll be playing a song and my director will tell me to stop in five, four, three, two, one, and then I'll, I'll stop. So I have to always constantly be listening to them while playing. So um, I think it was logistics like that that made me nervous at first. But then um, after a while, I think the nerves kind of went away. Um, you know, of course, you know, when there's, a full house at Turner Field is about 53,000. So um, when we do have sellout games, you know, uh, 53,000 people um, will make you a little bit nervous. <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, but really, you know, being in um, – I'm actually situated in the press box at Turner Field. And it's all – it's almost like I'm kind of, I don't know, somehow disassociated from the game in, in a way. It's kind of weird to describe, but – I don't feel like I'm playing in front of 50,000 people. You know, I know that what I'm playing is going out there. And I, you know, and I, I, I know that, you know, if I do make a mistake, everyone will hear it. But, you know, you were talking about me and my degrees. Um, I have a master's degree in music. And at the ball, at the ball games, I'm not playing the hardest stuff that I, I've ever played. So um, not that I'm playing it safe, but, you know, if, if I were out there playing you know, um, a Bach prelude and fugue, I'd be a lot more nervous than playing. Um, if you're happy and you know, clap your hands. <laughs> so, um, have you made any memorable mistakes on a, a low difficulty song? Not, not really. And, um, you know, I, I guess I, I make little mistakes here and there in every game. No one really mm-hmm. knows it because if I make a mistake, I pretend like I've done it on purpose. And, and as a musician, you kind of learn to, um, just roll with those mistakes. Mm-hmm. So really, um, a mistake of mine doesn't really sound like a mistake sometimes because unless you're really listening hard, you're not going to notice it. So I've learned, um, you know, I learned pretty quickly that um, because I'll I'll ask people, I'll I'll ask the audio engineer and I'll ask uh, the director sometimes, you know, if you heard that or whatever, and they don't even they don't even notice it. So you know what I deem as a mistake is not really noticeable. This is a, a different kind of mistake, but you'll hear every so often of a, an organist or stadium DJ who uh, gets in trouble for usually it's mocking the umpires. Has that ever happened to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I was told from day one, yeah, no um, three blind mice <laughs> and no uh, nothing direct. They actually they they even kind of shield me away from that. Where if there's a um, disputed call or anything like that, they they're not having me play anyways. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I, I really can't you know, do anything disparaging with the umps. 
And what about with opposing players? Where do you draw the line? You know, a lot of your song selections are sort of puns or wordplay. There's some light taunting there, certainly. Is there Mm -hmm. a a, a line that you draw? Are there times when you ask someone else, hey, can I play this? Or is this going too far? And has a player ever complained? I don't think it was a complaint. You know, um, I guess one of my most notorious moments was um, when Lucas Studa came up to bat. And I had the whole stadium singing um, Camptown Races, so, <laughs> doing the Duda Duda. Um, and apparently, you know, the, the press, the Mets press asked him after the game. And he said, you know, it's something he's kind of heard all his whole life. So, you know, uh, I don't think he was really, you know, complaining or anything like that. He just was kind of over it. No, I, I, I know, I guess I know the line not to cross. I don't know if you you probably have heard the story of this year of the Cubs DJ. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, and you could explain to your listeners that whole story, but I would definitely not cross that line. That that's that's something not to joke with. But you know, if if someone you know if someone is rumored to be dating a celebrity, I might play something based on that. Like for example, when A Rod was kind of tied in with Madonna, I would play Material Girl when he went up to bat. Um, so things that are kind of common knowledge that are not really touchy subjects, I, I think I'm I'm okay to play for that. Mm-hmm. Do you have any favorite selections, your greatest hits? <laughs> greatest hits? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure. Um, whenever, uh, I think he played for the Nationals, Michael Morse. Um, whenever he would mm-hmm. come up, I would actually play Morse code. So <laughs> I think it, it's a more creative one. And at first, you know, the, the the Morse code that everyone or a lot of people know is SOS, mm-hmm. which is like beep, 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 beep. So, right. so I would do that just with one note on the organ. Um, but then I, um, I, I figured out how to play um, O-U-T in Morse code. <laughs> and I don't think, you know, unless you're in the military, you would not have gotten that one. But um, I like that one as well as, um, I don't know, I think the, the ones... That would be more obscure to me, for example, like the like you're talking about with take five. I think those are the ones I like better because you have to look pretty deep or you have to um, have some knowledge of different styles of music, maybe. But, you know, there's so many there's so many walk up songs that I've played for people that, you know, it's, it's hard to pick one. Now, the ones that everyone usually likes are the ones that are like I was saying before, that are universal songs that everyone knows. So. Like, for example, for uh, John Mayberry, I'll play the Andy Griffith theme. So the things that people know right away um, seem to be the most popular ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just looking back through your timeline. I'm particularly enjoying Jesus is Just All Right for Jason Moore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? Um, for some reason, because uh, he was back on the, um, the Phillies at that point, just looking at his headshot, and I'm like, I thought to myself, this guy looks like Jesus. And... Uh, so I started playing that for him, and apparently, and this was you know a while back. Um, he told Brian McCann, who was our catcher at the time. Apparently, he told Brian McCann that he couldn't believe that I was playing that song for him. Um, so, <laughs> so that grew into me playing more Christmas songs or more just um, songs referring um, maybe heaven, like Stairway to Heaven or stuff like that. So, um, I've kind of run away with that one. And would you consider this a dying art or is it making a comeback? I think when you were hired, I read there were 16 live organists out of 30 ballparks. I don't know if you know what the number is right now, but 
are we trending toward this or away from this? I think it's a roughly the same. I think it's about half. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't know if anyone has really come up with the actual number yet. Um, it'd be a good thing for someone to tr- really try to go over. Um, I think, I think there's organists will still be around, but the trend is definitely to have more pre-recorded music. So the, um, you know, the last true ballpark that was playing only organ was Wrigley, and they've, you know, they've started to go with the DJ, which you've seen the results of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I vote for more organ there. But yeah, with. Um, with the big um, TV screens that are at ballparks and more kind of interactive games that go in, in between the innings, you know, we have a tool race at Turner Field and stuff like that. There's definitely a lot more pre-recorded things that that happen for the purpose of those um, sponsored events. So when you whenever you have any sponsor sponsorships, there's going to be some sort of pre-recorded part. To answer your question, you know, I think there, there will be Oregon for a long time, but it's not as vital as it used to be. Um, however, I don't know, I don't know how many of the organists actually do walk-up songs like I do, which is actually, um, which is actually kind of curious to me because that's kind of my, I don't know, I guess my number one job is the walk-up songs. So I don't know how other teams do the walk-ups for their opposing teams. Hmm. Like, are, where are you? Are you guys in Philly? No, we're I'm in Houston, Ben's in New York. So I I don't think they've got they definitely don't do that in at a Minute Maid Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious on, you know, finding out what the really kind of the jobs of the or, other organists are. And you've played for very good Braves teams, you've played for very bad Braves teams. Does it affect your job at all or are you doing the same thing regardless? I th- you know, I think I'm doing the same thing regardless. Actually, um, I think I want to, for some reason, it kind of makes me work harder when the team is not as good <laughs> because I want to make the fans experience <laughs> enjoyable, even if they're not winning. Um, so somehow this season for me has been a lot of fun. Of course, you know, um, their record is not um, so stellar at the moment, but uh, I still think that the experience of going to a ballpark, you know, still could be a lot of fun, even if the results are not um you know, what you want. And this is the Braves last season in Turner Field. Do you know what your setup in SunTrust Park will look like? Well, they're telling me that I'm going to be in. So right now, like I was saying before, I'm in the press box and I'm actually right behind. um, I'm in the third row right behind the opposing team's press. So that actually kind of um, sometimes gives me some inside scoop (laughs) on on what songs to play, which, uh, which is kind of fun. But um, at SunTrust, they're telling me that I'm going to be in the um, control room where the mixing board is, which, I don't know, to me, it's not going to be as much fun. Um, I'd much rather, um, I heard that the uh, the Minnesota Twins organist is in the middle of a bar. Huh. And um, I would I would love to be somewhere in the middle of where the fans are. Mm, yeah. um, but I guess logistics-wise and perhaps, you know, down here in Atlanta with the heat, perhaps it is better being indoors somewhere. <laughs> you yeah. know, this this year we've had, I don't know, 40 plus days of 90 and over. So being outside in the sun probably is not a good idea. Yeah, I was going to say, apart for, if not for that, they should get you like a, a big platform with flames coming out the side, like the guitarist <laughs> in Mad Max or something. Like, really there you go. Off. <laughs> yeah. But, I guess uh, the well, flames wouldn't actually make it that much hotter. 
<laughs> if it's um, in the summer. My, I think uh, someone was saying that I should walk around with my accordion and just start playing throughout the whole uh, stadium with my accordion. <laughs> I would be here for that. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, so I'll be right next to the mixing board, which I think moves me into the front row. <laughs> so uh, perhaps that's better. Um, they're also they're also telling me that they're going to get me a new organ. Mm. So to me, that's that's worth the move in itself. <laughs> A, a real organ or still keyboard? Well, right now, um, right now, I I have a real organ, but it's a pretty much a makeshift MIDI organ. Meaning, yeah. what they have at the stadium is an electric piano, and I take mm-hmm. one of my um, Hammond keyboards called the SK One. I I hook that through a MIDI cable into the lower keyboard, and I also bring MIDI pedals with me that I hook up to that. So. So what I have is is an organ. You know, it's got two manuals, it's got pedals, but it's it's made of three different parts. Um, uh-huh. But the, but they're telling me that they're going to actually buy me, you know, a true organ um, that will be there for a long time. So so I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah, and <laughs> by extension, so will you, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I hope so. You know, um, with um, I don't know how it is with um, all other ball teams, but um, being the organist is a seasonal employment. So they, what they pretty much do is they fire and rehire you every year. <laughs> so at the, at the end of the season, you get a separation notice, but then, you know, they call you back and they have you back next season. So I'm, you know, I've been back, uh, this is my eighth season. So I, I have no reason why they wouldn't have me back. All right. Well, I'm glad we got the gear discussion in for all the hardcore organists out there. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, um, if you want to select a song or suggest a song for Matthew, you can find him on Twitter at Braves Organist. If you want to buy his music, as far as I can tell, you've gone from a solo act to a trio to a quartet, so you're moving up in the world. You can <laughs> find his info at MatthewKaminsky.com. And I guess if you've gone to a Braves game this year and you've seen a bad Braves game, the saving grace is that hopefully you've seen a good Matthew Kaminsky concert. So <laughs> your, your ticket was not wasted. So Matthew, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So that will do it for today. Thanks to Tom and Darren and Matthew for coming on. Thanks to Michael for being by my side as always. And thanks to you for listening. I hope you have a nice weekend. We will be back with a new episode of the Ringer MLB show on Tuesday. <laughs>